Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This, as ever, is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and I'd like to remind you to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Help us get up in the rankings and in front of more people. We really appreciate that. Our social media is, of course, Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and Twitter, but mainly Instagram. Lots of fun things always happening on the Instagram, so definitely recommend you follow us there. I'm, of course, at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. We have the iconic niche legend dad hat in our merch store at poppantheonpod.com. The look for summer. You don't want to miss it. And we, of course, have bonus content at patreon.com slash poppantheon. If you join at the icon tier, you're getting at least three bonus episodes of the show per month. We just published a deep dive into Mariah Carey's glitter and the justice for glitter movement. So you don't want to miss joining Pop Pantheon All Access, our Patreon channel. Link for that will also be in the show notes of this episode. And finally, the debut of my queer pop party, Gorgeous Gorgeous, is happening tomorrow night in Brooklyn at Sultan Room. I want to see you there. There's but a few tickets left. Click the link in the show notes of this episode, and I hope to see some of my tri-state area niche legends at tomorrow night's gorgeous, gorgeous debut. I am so fucking excited. I literally cannot contain myself over this party finally returning to my hometown. I am thrilled beyond comprehension. So this is the third episode in our Pride series, and we already talked about Kim Petras. We did Pride anthems last week with Priyanka, and when we were originally conceiving the series, there was one artist that I felt really inclined to put a spotlight on who is probably the most important originator of queerness in the pop space as we know it today. He's the inventor of rock and roll music. He's the inventor of so many pop star tropes that have become hugely influential on so many stars that have come after him. And he's just an absolutely fascinating, sometimes tragic, sometimes incredibly inspirational figure to me as a queer person. And this deep dive was moving beyond all belief and so inspiring and really, really interesting. So I hope you guys enjoy Pop Pantheon, Little Richard. I've waxed poetic on this show about the centrality of queerness at the very foundation of pop music and stardom. I've also talked at length about how, even now in 2023, queer people remain so influential on pop, yet woefully underrepresented in the form of actual pop stars themselves. It's still, even now, hard for an actual queer person, and one that puts that queerness front and center in any way specifically, to be embraced by mainstream audiences. So when thinking about Little Richard, the sometimes openly gay but always extraordinarily and fantastically queer-presenting architect of rock and roll, a black man who not only essentially invented pop music as we know it, but also many of the facets of pop stardom that everyone from the Beatles to Bowie to Prince to Madonna, Gaga, Rihanna, Sam Smith, Beyonce, Lil Nas X, and all the rest have copied. I am nothing short of floored. Floored by his audacity to exist and even thrive in the pop culture of the late 50s and beyond. Floored at his bravery to be such an explosive glitter bomb of queerness at a time where many would have liked to have seen him annihilated. And floored that he was able to allow himself to be himself to the extent that he did, so that the very concepts of rock music and pop stardom could be birthed through him. Pop music can sometimes be misconstrued as, quote, queer-coded, but what Little Richard shows us is that pop music has always been inherently and fundamentally queer to its very core. Well, I saw Uncle John with bald head Sally. He saw Mary coming and he ducked back in the alley, oh, baby. Richard
Richard Wayne Pennyman was born in Macon, Georgia on December 5th, 1932, and was raised in a historically African-American community called Pleasant Hill. Richard was the third of 12 children born to LeVay May and Charles Pennyman. His father was a devout church deacon who owned a nightclub but refused to play secular R&B music in the house. As a child, Richard, who was nicknamed Lil Richard for his small frame, took piano lessons and sang in the church and later played saxophone in the school's band. When he was a teen, Richard left his family home to tour with a vaudeville review, and by the 50s, Richard was even sometimes performing in drag as Princess LaVon. He later moved to Atlanta, where he recorded his first songs and began touring nightclubs as an R&B act. After struggling through various false starts with multiple record labels, Richard had an epiphany not just for himself, but for pop history when he wrote and recorded Tutti Fruity for Specialty Records, a song which whipped elements of various genres, like the blues, R&B, boogie, and gospel, into a signature Richard sexual frenzy of lyrics, real and invented, and otherworldly euphoric hoots and hollers. The song was an instant hit in the US and the UK, scaling both the R&B and pop charts, selling over a million copies, and now being widely credited as the genesis of rock and roll music. Richard followed the success of Tutti Frutti with a slew of hits through 1956 and 57 in the same raucous style, like Long Tail Sally, Slippin' and Slidin', Rip It Up, and The Girl Can't Help It. Together, these records represent one of the first great collections of rock and roll music, and maybe one of the first imperial phases in modern music history. He also began to tour across the United States, performing shows in his signature unbridled fashion, rocking crowds with his pencil mustache and pompadour, and appearing almost possessed, sprinting across the stage, climbing onto his piano, and sometimes even ripping his shirt off. His live shows were so gloriously energetic, unpredictable, and thrilling that his contemporary Lloyd Price once said no one would want to follow Little Richard, not just the same night, but for weeks after. This style of onstage performance was incredibly unique for the time period, but it more or less helped bring into form The Rock Star, an iconoclastic flamboyant character who thrilled by bucking convention and embodying unbridled human emotion. During this period, Richard also helped bring black and white audiences into the same crowd, speaking to both the growing power of rock and roll music to help disintegrate cultural barriers, but also the way Richard's music and persona presaged both the civil rights movement and sexual revolution that would define the next decade. His work, too, continued to evolve, with hits like Lucille incorporating rhythmic and other aesthetic touchstones that would prove hugely influential on the sounds of future hits by the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, Elvis, and more. By late 1947, Richard had already scored nine top 40 pop singles and 17 top 40 R&B singles. But as much as he was achieving one of the greatest and most influential runs in pop history, as well as perhaps the greatest expression of unencumbered queerness pop culture had seen to that point, from the inside, his life was defined by conflict and turmoil. While Richard was known to openly have sex with men, the original lyrics of Tutti Frutti, after all, were Tutti Frutti, good booty. He also was plagued by his religious upbringing and haunted by feelings that both rock and roll music and his sexuality were sins that would land him in hell. 
This ping-ponging in and out of the closet, sometimes proudly touting himself as a queer pioneer and other times rather harmfully preaching the sins of homosexuality, would define a lot of the rest of his life. Richard also, even at the peak of his success, felt rightfully and woefully under-celebrated, especially when many of his songs would be covered by more palatable-seeming white artists and achieve bigger chart success than his originals had. Not to mention his horrible record deal, which left him reaping very little of the financial benefits that his innovations were generating. So in 1958, Richard quit pop music to attend divinity school and become an ordained minister, renouncing his gayness and traveling across the country to preach and record gospel music, including the Quincy Jones-produced King of the Gospel Singers, released in 1962. However, Richard returned to secular music almost as quickly as he'd left it, touring Europe playing his rock songs in 1962 with the Beatles as his opening act, and joining another tour with the Rolling Stones in 1963. In 1964, future rock legend Jimi Hendrix joined his band, which soon scored a hit with the soul ballad, I Don't Know What You've Got, But It's Got Me. But through the late 1960s and 70s, while Richard remained one of the premier live acts in the world, he struggled to achieve the chart success he'd had in the late 50s with his new music. Richard did, however, become a pop cultural camp figure through this period, reinventing his look with fabulous sequined outfits and becoming a regular and absolutely delightful guest on talk shows, where he'd openly discuss his struggles and triumphs in the industry, taught his achievements as the architect of rock and roll, and both celebrate and renounce his sexuality, depending on the day. Richard returned to the spotlight in 1984 with an authorized biography that led to new opportunities, including an acclaimed role in the film Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Though his music never returned to the top of the charts, he parlayed his celebrity into a series of film and television appearances on everything from Full House to Hollywood Squares, maintaining widespread recognition and acclaim through his passing in 2020. Little Richard has sold more than 30 million records worldwide. He had more than two dozen songs hit Billboard's charts, including four top 10 hits on the Billboard Top 100, the precursor to the Hot 100, and three number ones on the R&B chart. Little Richard has been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Apollo Theater Hall of Fame, the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame, the Blues Hall of Fame, the NAACP Image Award Hall of Fame, and the Rhythm and Blues Music Hall of Fame. Little Richard has also received Lifetime Achievement Awards from both the Recording Academy Academy and the Rhythm and Blues Foundation. Rolling Stone ranked Little Richard the eighth greatest artist of all time and named three of his songs, The Girl Can't Help It, Long Tell Sally, and Tutti Frutti, to its list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Though his classic run ended before the origin of the Grammy Awards, Little Richard has one album and three songs in the Grammy Hall of Fame. James Brown, Otis Redding, Tina Turner, Bob Dylan, Michael Jackson, Mick Jagger, Rod Stewart, Robert Plant, David Bowie, and Elton John have all listed Richard as a key influence. Here with me to discuss the work, career, and life of Little Richard is the outgoing chair of the Clive Davis Institute and the incoming dean of the Thornton School of Music at USC, Jason King. Okay, I'm here once again with the outgoing chair of the Clive Davis Institute and the incoming dean of the Thornton School of Music at USC, Jason King. Jason, welcome back to the show once again. Thank you. So glad to be here. I'm so, so thrilled to have you. When we were conceiving of our Pride content, the first thing that came up was Little Richard. We were thinking about how do we use this month to help tell stories of important queer artists in the pop space. And I'm wondering, I guess, is it fair to consider Little Richard perhaps the first queer pop icon as we think of the word pop star, we think of a pop star today? Is Little Richard kind of ground zero for that idea? Sure. I mean, I think when you look at the history of pop music, it's always been queer. 
it is inherently right. queer. So there's figures like Bessie Smith and others. I don't know if you mm-hmm. call them pop stars. I think they were the big music stars of their day. They were the blues artists who created a huge kind of pop craze, and they were queer. So there's been other queer performers, but I think when you're talking about rock and roll and you're talking about the 1950s and the revolution that happened then, he is certainly the queerest of those figures. And he is the person who really initiates the idea of pop music as a space for queer identity to express itself in the 20th century. I was so moved yesterday watching the documentary that you participated in, which was Little Richard, I Am Everything, which everybody should watch. It was so well done. It was fascinating. One thread that ran through it is, of course, because Little Richard is not just queer, he is a black queer artist, how underappreciated, I guess, he was or under-celebrated he felt even himself throughout his career, and yet how, at least in the terms the documentary presents it, he is the sort of nexus point for so much of pop stardom that came after him. And there's this incredible montage at the end of the movie that shows you everyone from David Bowie to Prince to Freddie Mercury to Little Nas X to Madonna, not even just queer artists, but all pop stars that have come after him and really does a good job of showing you in brief moments how they all almost appear or perform or look like or are building on what Little Richard did. And there was also a quote that you had towards the end of the movie where you said, he was very good at liberating other people through his example. He was not so good at liberating himself, which to me, going through this story was the thing that has stuck with me in deep diving into this was looking at him and feeling so inspired as a queer person by how much when he did let himself just go there, it was a liberating feeling for me or an inspiring feeling for me. And then a lot of sadness that I can relate to as a queer person in terms of how one moderates that or feels like they have conflict around that. And it was something that bore out, I think, in his career because he seems like he kind of went through wave after wave of living out his identity in a way that felt almost like too much liberation for the time period or too much for people to even take or for him to even understand or take. And then these periods where he felt so much guilt and shame about that. And I feel like that is the story of a lot of queer people and something that I think we all can sort of see in our own lives in this particular way. And I just found that incredibly touching and sad and inspiring all at one time or something like that. Yeah, I mean, he's a complex figure. And by that, it means that he was full of contradictions. And he lived out those contradictions in his music. He lived them out in his everyday life. It's sad to watch in some ways because he didn't become free by the example of freedom that he himself embodied. And so it's difficult to watch that and you feel in so many ways that he sabotaged himself and then also hurt and victimized Mm. other people. But he was a victim himself. And he was a victim of all of these structural forces that came to bear on him, homophobia and racism and Cold War conservatism and everything else. And he could never ultimately escape those things, even as he created a blueprint to give other people the opportunity to escape from those Mm. things. And that blueprint continues on. I mean, I think he is part of the DNA of popular music. He's embedded everywhere in pop music. And he's an inconvenient reminder of the black queer roots of rock and roll. He was treated terribly by the rock and roll establishment. During his lifetime, he was never fully credited. He was never given his full due. So his life is a kind of commentary on the rent of stolen labor, what that does to people. 
And yet at the same time, he was this freeing figure. So what's so fascinating about his life is the fact that he could represent all of that freedom in the midst of so much constriction and that he's still offering people the example of his freedom and people can live through that and create their own versions of themselves, even if he couldn't ultimately liberate himself. That's so powerful. And I think the other thing that I'm excited to do here with you is he's a figure that I think both because he's many generations removed from us and he's a monument in this way and he's a caricature of himself in this way, as many of these figures can become. And we can get into the way that the public receives flamboyance and how flamboyance can immediately turn somebody into someone that people don't sort of see as credible or something like that. I just kept thinking about Kennedy Davenport's incredible impression of Little Richard during the Snatch Game on RuPaul's Drag Race. It's rock and roll legend, Little Richard! Are you feeling a little more tootie or a little more fruity? A little more tootie, baby! (laughs) Shut up! That's probably the impression that most people have of Little Richard, which is hilarious and has its own value, and I love that performance. But it'll be fun, I think, and informative for my listeners to actually go back and remind people what an incredibly instrumental figure Richard was, not just in creating the sound of pop music or creating what pop music is by means of creating what rock music is, the foundation of everything that's come after it aesthetically, but also as the film was getting into the presentation the performance, the way they use the stage, the way they use their voices, the way that he was able to flesh out that character. It's not just like he was this silly little, pardon my French, F-word, fag, whatever. I think that that gets lost a little bit in the sands of time or something like that. When you have figures like this, that somehow how iconic they are almost obscures their innovations. And so I'm excited with you to help lay out for people what little Richard actually did for every single pop star that everybody is standing here today. And I think that that's going to be a really important piece of work for this podcast as we attempt to unfurl the nature of pop stardom for everybody. So let's go back in time and just lay a little bit of backstory for little Richard. Who is he? Where is he born? born to whom and the elements, I guess, of his childhood that feel instructive to understanding his pop stardom, his musicianship, and the internal conflicts that define his story. So Richard is a Southern boy. He's born in Macon, Georgia. He's born in the 1930s in the middle of the Great Depression. He's from the Pleasant Hill neighborhood, which is in Fulton County. So it's a really small town. He comes from a really large family. He's the third of 12 children. His mother is very ensconced in the church. His father is also a church deacon who works all of these other jobs. He moonlights as a nightclub owner. He sells moonshine illegally, all kinds of stuff. And Little Richard's early childhood is spent largely in the church. His family moved between various denominations, Baptist, Pentecostal, etc. He took piano lessons really early. And at that time, you have to remember that for a lot of black folks, there was a line drawn in the sand between secular and spiritual music. So you either did one or the other. And a lot of times there were very strict rules about not merging the two. And so Little Richard's family was very against him listening to or performing any kind of R&B music. That was considered the devil's music. It was considered worldly. And that's the world that Little Richard came out of. You also have to remember this is the Black South. It's the Great Depression. It's a time of entrenched segregation, the terror and the violence of white supremacy, lynching. All of that is going on. And so Little Richard came out of that context 
And as a child, he was really bullied. He was bullied by his classmates, partly because he was disabled. His right leg was longer than his left leg, so he walked with a little bit of a limp. And if you didn't know, it made him look kind of effeminate. It was like he was sashaying all the time. (laughs) And so kids, you know how horrible they can be. They would bully him, and they would talk about the fact that they felt that he was queer, that he was non-normative. His father also bullied him. So I always think of Little Richard's entire life as being defined by that early moment in childhood where he's bullied and he doesn't have the freedom to do what he wants to do. And his whole life is a kind of quiet revenge for the way that he was bullied. He's writing himself back into the culture very loudly and very boldly where others tried to erase him early on. It's so interesting because the thing about the sort of divide between the secular music and the church music feels like such a huge part of Little Richard's story. He ends up spending a lot of his career ping-ponging between the two and feeling like they can't coexist. And it's so interesting because in watching him perform and in watching essentially the reason that rock and roll as we know it today was birthed through him, I kept thinking about how informative it clearly was for him to grow up singing in church and how that channeling of the spirit or whatever, which you guys covered in the documentary in terms of Sister Rosetta Tharp and all of these people, but that particular style where Richard would almost become possessed by the spirit as he performed felt like such an innovative quality that he brought to secular music. So it was almost like the fusion of the two things is where his magic occurred, and yet it was that conflict that also destroyed him or pulled him asunder at the same time. And that interplay between those two things, as established in this early idea that these two things can't come together, is just a terrible and painful conflict that I I just was so moved by and thinking about a lot watching the documentary. Just the religious aspect of his upbringing both made him who he was and allowed him to, through himself, channel and create the future of music, and yet also kind of ruined his life at the same time. But it's the same for so many black artists who are ripped apart by their relationship to the spiritual and then to the worldly. And so whether that's Al Green or D'Angelo or so many others, they also have that divide in their lives between sin and salvation that makes it impossible in many ways for them to live, even though the music they create as a result of being torn asunder between those two things creates a dialectic that other people find very liberating to listen to and to be engaged in. So that's the challenge. But he starts in the church as a singer who is anointed, as they say. They have that oil in their voice, which basically means that you exist as a kind of vessel for divine energy. The spirit flows through you. And so if you're an anointed singer, you are someone who can access that divine energy in your sound. And everything that Little Richard sings is a kind of praise music in service of God and Jesus. He's always involved in spirit worship in some way, shape, or form. Even if he's singing about graphic sex, like he does in a lot of his songs, he's doing it with an energy that is very much about worshiping God. And that tension in his work is what's so fascinating and so powerful and what so many of us find attractive about his music and his singing. Yeah, and it raises questions about what does celebrating godliness actually look like and mean? It gave me a lot to think about, too, because I think, and I think Zandria Robinson points this out in the film, that in some moments he realized that what brought him closest to God was being fully himself. And obviously him being fully himself 
shook the world, you know what I mean, and touched so many people. And as you mentioned, it's just so interesting what these codified notions of what fealty to God looks like in the traditional sense, and then how we can evolve our thoughts on what it means to celebrate godliness on the earthly plane, and how much he embodied those two opposing ideas is just absolutely fascinating and contains American history, religious history, Black history, all of these things in this one singular figure. So how does Richard move from childhood where he's experiencing all of the influences that you're talking about into starting to understand his talent for music and pursuing music perhaps as a professional endeavor? Well, for one, I think he's listening to and acculturated on a lot of great music of the time. So he's listening to men like Roy Brown, who does Good Rockin' Tonight, mm. the blues singer. Lewis Jordan, who's one of the inventors of the form that came right before R&B called Jump Blues. It was rocket. It was rocket. You never see such company and Chuck Tell's breakup He's literally performing some of Lewis Jordan's songs early on, songs like Caledonia and others. Billy Wright, the incredible, flamboyant, queer R&B musician who needs to get a little bit more of his due <laughs> one of these days. Little Richard was very much inspired by his showmanship. I get the blues for my baby Ever since she's been gone away And there were so many others, also Mahalia Jackson, Marion Williams of the Claire Award Singers. Oh, I got you. Sister Rosetta Tharp, who he met and he even opened for. You hide me in the bosom, and the storms of life is over. Oh, rock me in the cradle of thou love. So he's listening to all of that stuff, and then he's starting to attempt a showbiz career of his own. And so early on in his late teens, he leaves home actually, and he starts performing on the road. He's doing traveling shows with all of these very nefarious figures. He's part of Dr. Hudson's medicine show, literally a snake oil charmer guy who runs like a traveling <laughs> theatrical show. And Little Richard is performing Lewis Jordan's Caledonia in that show. Mm. He's doing all these other traveling shows as well. He's on the vaudeville circuit, the minstrel show circuit. He's performing in drag as Princess Lavoni in Sugarfoot Sam's traveling show as well. So he's doing all of that and he's basically cutting his teeth in that really rigorous, difficult, tough world of the minstrel shows, the vaudeville shows, and he's figuring out what he wants to do creatively. Here's a question that I think might sound a little bit dumb, but I actually think is important to talk about here. What is rock and roll? I know this is a funny question to ask, but I do think this idea gets obscured because obviously this isn't a term that's in existence during Little Richard's initial forays into music, but the seeds of it are being planted. You talked about Sister Rosetta Tharp, who feels like obviously a founder 
foundational figure. I guess maybe first rewind, maybe it would be helpful to just help people understand what are the sort of main influences on rock and roll that are operating as Little Richard is coming up through this firmament. And then also perhaps like what rock and roll is as it comes into being through him. That's one thing that I'm curious and defining for people because I think it's, as I mentioned, almost the same way that Little Richard is an icon and in some ways his iconography kind of obscures what exactly that is about. I think that can be true of the term rock and roll in the year of our Lord 2023. It's so baked in. We use it as this term that just is taken for granted, but I wonder if people really understand what it meant in this particular moment, if that makes sense. It does make sense, and I think it's worth going back and trying to figure that out. Little Richard describes himself as the architect of rock and roll, which I love that term. He's the designer, he's the builder, he creates the foundation of it. I describe him as the original framer of rock and roll, its chief mastermind, the person who gave it its most important inventions. So to back up, I mean, rock and roll is essentially the name that they gave after 1954 to white people who were performing black R&B music. And black R&B music at that time was an independent underground music. You could not necessarily get signed to a major record label doing it but it was incredibly popular in black communities. And essentially, it was a mix of a whole bunch of different things. It was a mixture of what was called jump blues at the time, which was these tight, small blues-like combos that had heavy piano, honking saxophones. It was a tight, very funky rhythm section, essentially. That had preceded the rise of rock and roll just by a few years. There was also jazz in rock and roll. There was blues. There was gospel, country music as well. It was a mix of all of those different things. So when we describe rock and roll, it's a fusion of a bunch of different kinds of music that came into it. But if you listen to early rock and roll, so Rocket 88 by Jackie Brenston, some of Fats Domino's songs, they all sound very different. And there's not necessarily one mm. pure rock and roll sound. But what Little Richard did is he came in and he brought in a really hard driving kind of New Orleans R&B music. So basically, this is music that is heavily driven by drums and bass, has a very strong backbeat, has hard, kind of soulful gospel vocals on it. Because I get you all of my money, girl, but you just won't treat me right. You like to fall in the morning, don't come back to live at night. Then what he did is in his left hand when he's playing piano because it's obviously piano driven music in his left hand he was doing boogie woogie so boogie woogie was a blues style that had started in the 1930s but it's a boogie woogie kind of ostinato pattern in his left hand on the piano so it's dun 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 then on his right hand, he's taking an innovation that he heard from Ike Turner, who is the incredible piano player mm. who would work with Elvis by the mid-1950s. And Ike Turner, in his right hand, he played piano in the upper registers with a really hard-driving percussive sound. So he would... Like he would bang on the piano. Mm. 
Little Richard loved that. Mm -hmm. And so Little Richard fused those things. He took the New Orleans approach to a hard-driving, tight R&B sound. In his left hand, he put the boogie-woogie, left-hand bass shuffle rhythm. And then on the right, he would play the piano really hard with those pounding upper register piano keys. And that created this Little Richard sound on songs like Tutti Frutti and others that sounded like nothing else. It was explosive. And that is really the sound of what became rock and roll. Essentially, everybody else was doing their take on what Little Richard had done by changing the sound of R&B as it became renamed rock and roll. So it's almost a postmodern idea of taking lots of different things. And I think we even talked about this maybe when we were talking about Madonna a little bit. The idea of 1980s pop stars doing some version of genre collapsing slash mashing. In a way, this is similar to that. And I think it's also just kind of like an ethereal spirit or some sort of energy or lifestyle or vibe, a certain freedom. You know, that was one thing that I kept thinking about watching him is... There's the technical side of the innovations that he brought to it. And there's also just the rock star, the idea of who is the person performing this? How are they performing this? What is the energy that they're bringing to it? A sort of crazy, freewheeling, wild feeling to the person through whom this is being delivered. Absolutely. I mean, Fats Domino is making rock and roll out of New Orleans, but it's like genteel rock and roll. If you listen to Blueberry Hill right. compared to Slip a Slide or any of Little Richard's songs, I mean, there's a total difference there. Yeah. But Little Richard brings in this raucous, revolutionary energy. Right. And when people talk about rock and roll, they're not just talking about the music or even the sonics. They're talking about the energy of it, what it did in a room. Mm -hmm. And so Little Richard creates the archetype of the rock star in the 1950s alongside people who would come later, Elvis and Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. Right. He is that preening, over-the-top, flamboyant, unpredictable provocateur. That is what rock and roll is, and that's what everyone from Bowie to Jagger, to Tina Turner, to all of these folks, they're just operating in the same template that Little Richard created mm. around that rock and roll performer and the rock star. So in terms of his early music, when he gets signed to this RCA Victor deal and the Peacock recordings, that's not really what he's doing. What's happening before his breakthrough? What is he doing there? And how does that help us understand what Black musicians especially are pigeonholed as in the early 50s, maybe. Yeah, in the early 50s before rock and roll had become a thing. I mean, it was really R&B, right? And so it was independent, it was underground, meaning that record labels were interested in it, but it generally wasn't hitting the charts per se. White audiences were interested in listening to it, but the listening options at that time were very, very segregated. So black artists were often marginalized into this R&B space mm. as that music grew and as it developed in popularity. So Little Richard was trying to find his legs. I would say some of those early recordings that he did prior to his initiation on specialty records when he was signed to RCA Victor and other records, you know, it's a little tentative. He's still trying to figure out exactly what his sound is. Mm -hmm. He has a band called the Tempo Toppers and they're very, very good and they've performed all over and he's recording with them I 
And the music that he's making is fine. It's good, but it doesn't chart at all. And I think he's having a really hard time trying to figure out exactly how to become the breakout star that he feels that he can and that he should be. And it takes him a minute to figure that out. And the real change there for him is that, first of all, his father is killed. Mm. That's huge. He's back in Macon, Georgia. He's facing the possibility of a life where he's just going to be scrubbing dishes as a dishwasher at a local Greyhound station to support his family. Mm -hmm. He realizes he can't do that. The recording hasn't worked out for him. And he actually goes and he sees this performer named Escorita. And Escorita is essentially performing in town, doing the kinds of things that Little Richard can do. He's exaggerated. He's flamboyant, queer, over the top. And that's a game changer for Little Richard. He meets Escarita. He basically takes, copies, borrows, appropriates a lot of Escarita's style. Mm. And all of a sudden, he gets rid of his band, the Tempo Toppers, and he has a new band called the Upsetters. And that's literally what they do. They create this disruptive, raucous R&B music. And all of a sudden, he has a new direction. And that is part of the reason that we know the Little Richard that we know today is because he made that change and moves away from some of the tedium of some of the earlier R&B records he's doing to do this much more hard-driving mainstream rock and roll music. I was thinking about the quote. There's a moment in the film where he says, we were all sick of that slow music, Dragon Ray Charles. I don't know. He was obviously tapped into the zeitgeist of teenagerdom, which I feel like is such an important part of the rock and roll movement is the evolution of the teenager as a audience to play to in particular. And it seems like he had a real instinctual sense of what they wanted or needed or something. It doesn't seem like it was intellectual it just feels like because maybe he was one of them in a sense or he was part of that generation that quote really stuck with me because it just felt like he was like i know what i need or i know what i want out of music and it's something with a burst of energy it's something faster it's something up tempo seems like he had some sort of powerful sense of that needing to happen i guess i think of him as a singer who could only have had the success that he had in the 10-year aftermath of World War II. So he is somebody who gathers up all of this swirling energy of this post-World War II moment. Everything that is defined in that moment, people soul-searching, people mm. hating each other, people loving each other, all of it. He grabs it all, he resynthesizes it and puts it back out to us as rock music, essentially. Yeah. In that sense, I think he anticipated it and he felt... And he could assume what young people were feeling as teenagers, mm -hmm. all of that yearning, all of that feeling. And that is such an important thing to be able to note, right? That he is somebody who was tapped in, as you said, to the zeitgeist yeah. and could absorb it and then could resynthesize it back out to us as rock music. And that's why rock music literally is a register for what young people were feeling, the energy, the mm -hmm. hormones, all of that. And so I think of him as being a kind of avant-garde pioneer, as important as Warhol or Pollock or any of those other figures that we celebrate from the 1950s, because what he did in terms of creating an invention was he literally created a style that 
stays with us today and is really the defining template for so much of contemporary popular music. And also exists at a fulcrum point where the world is about to experience the sexual revolution and there's about to be the civil rights. He's predating a lot of these huge cultural shifts, probably the biggest cultural shifts of the century, but it's still one foot in the old world, one foot in the new world, and he's ahead of the curb or sensing this coming huge change in culture through who he is as a figure and also like through what he's doing in music. He's almost 10 years ahead of everybody else in a certain sense in terms of what is about to burst through the seams of American culture in a sense. I think he's still ahead of the culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. (laughs) In 2023, he's still ahead of it, right? Yeah. So the big obvious revelation is the song Tutti Frutti in 1955. I'd like to zero in a little bit on this song. Many people consider it to be the prototypical rock and roll song as we think of it today. Can you tell me a little bit the story of how this song came together and what about this song makes it that. Why is this song such a revelation for both Richard and for the idea of rock and roll in general? So Tutti Frutti is recorded on specialty records. Little Richard has recorded for other record labels like RCA Victor, but he leaves those labels. He joins specialty records and he's working with the producer Bumps Blackwell. Mm -hmm. Bumps Blackwell's legendary band leader and producer and songwriter who's worked with a huge range of artists and based out of New Orleans, he has this incredible, incredible rhythm section. So one of the things that I always like to say about Bums Blackwell's band is unless you were there, you probably can't understand how visceral that music was. And I wasn't there, but I did see Little Richard live. And I know that live, he was always trying to recreate the fierce furious sound of the Bumps Blackwell band. And when I've seen them live, they would have two drums, three saxophones, four guitars. It was just overload. You felt it viscerally. You felt it in your bones and in your body. Yeah. So Bumps Blackwell wanted to record Little Richard. He was trying to find another Ray Charles who would become very popular. And so a lot of Little Richard's music just was a little bit tepid mm-hmm. and he needed something that was more raucous and uptempo. So Little Richard just started in the studio playing this song called Tutti Frutti. Mm -hmm. The funny thing about Tutti Frutti is that the original lyric to Tutti Frutti, at least as revealed to us through Little Richard's drummer, Charles Connor, were Tutti Frutti, good booty. Mm -hmm. If it's tight, it's all right. And if it's greasy, it makes it easy. (laughs) That's crazy. And I can't believe I'm saying that out loud. (laughs) (laughs) That's enough to make me blush even in 2023, I gotta say. Oh, we don't even have music like that in 2023. (laughs) There's another stanza. Tutti Frutti, good booty. If it don't fit, don't force it. You can grease it, make it easy. Yeah. And so, you know, this was music about anal sex. Yes. Like, let's just graphic, carnal music about anal sex. Sure. Bumps Blackwell loved the spirit of it, but didn't love the lyrics. So he brought in Dorothy Labostri, a professional songwriter, to come in and rewrite the lyrics to adhere to the code. Because remember, this is the 50s and conservatism, and you can't say those things on the radio. Mm-hmm. And so she did. And so it's Tutti Frutti, Ah Rudy, like all right. Right. Tutti Frutti, Ah Rudy. So they cleaned up the lyrics. And this became his breakout hit. This was the song that launched him, launched his career, and really was one of the key defining tracks of rock and roll, along with Rocket 88 and Good Rockin' Tonight and just a couple other songs. And this song was radical to radio, radical to audiences. Nobody had ever heard anything like this before. Nothing as aggressive, nothing that sounded like a Category 5 hurricane. It was visionary. It was future forward. This was the state of the art in its time.
One of the things about this song that to me jumps out is just the almost non-words that kind of come flying out of his mouth. I mean, the things you remember about this song are the, you know, the things that just sort of fly out of his mouth that feel almost like he's making up language because he's so possessed. I feel like that energy must have been so head spinning to people listening to this in 1955. And then the other thing that I just wanted to ask you about in terms of the original lyrics of the song is, I guess it's maybe a non sequitur for people who think about gay history as this linear thing to think about the fact that he was even openly writing lyrics like that in 1955. I'm curious how out of the norm was that for even just the people that did hear those original lyrics to hear from somebody? And how does that help us understand how Richard is relating to his own sexuality or identity in 1955? Oh, I think it was extremely provocative then. (laughs) You have to remember he also came out of that world that I was mentioning before of the nightclubs and the traveling shows and minstrel shows and so on. So his humor was really ribald and provocative and he was like a wild child. He was really out there. He was extremely outrageous. It's just that when he would go to record for his early sessions, he would then become the more demure, contained, buttoned up figure. And so when you listen to some of his early recordings, you don't hear that wildness. I think the genius of specialty records and Art Roop and Bumps Blackwell and all the people who worked on those records, Cosmo Matazza Studio at J&M in New Orleans, is they got all of that out of Little Richard. Right. They figured out how to take what he already represented and to put it on wax. Yeah. But you might hear those lyrics in late nights, nightclubs, you just wouldn't hear them on the radio. They were not mainstream. So the genius of Tutti Frutti is that it mainstreamed those lyrics by making them kind of coded, right? If you knew what he was saying, you knew what he was saying. And in fact, you didn't even have to know what he was saying when he said a wop, bop, 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 bam, boom, to know that he was talking about fucking. By the way he sings it, it's a punchline that says we're fucking, right? That's what it is. Or you just would think it's a casual throwaway line. And so the genius is that it had that double entendre aspect that's so powerful and that really runs through a lot of the history of popular music where you can hear things in a bunch of different ways. But there's no song that sounds like Tutti Frutti in its time. I mean, it is ferocious, that honking sax, the rhythm, Earl Palmer playing the drums with that backbeat. Totally different than some of those Fats Domino sessions that Earl Palmer had previously worked on. Right. This is power. This is driving, driving rhythm. Even now, it's driving in terms of the ferocity of the sound. It is a sexual frenzy. I mean, that's sort of the way I would describe this song, is it's an expression of sexual frenzy. And that coded language is so interesting because that comes back to the teenager thing. It's like coded language between young people that then can sort of obscure itself to older generations, in a sense. It's an interesting thing that continues to happen in pop music through the present day. Another innovative quality to some of this music that is speaking to the way that that he's looking at his generation directly in the eye and being like, I see you, I know what you want, I know what you're looking for, we're looking towards sexual liberation, but we're going to do it in a way that can get it on the radio in 1955, I guess, and that's kind of the genius of so many innovative moments in pop music is how do you squeeze an innovation into a box that can somehow also fly through the sensors in a sense. Absolutely, yep. Are you enjoying this episode? Because if you are, let me tell you, if you're only listening to the Pop Pantheon main feed, you're only getting half the story. Over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, we're now offering at least three, yes, 
three bonus episodes of the show per month. We're talking about all your favorite new albums like Jesse Ware's That Feels Good, digging into all the big singles of the month on our new music speed rounds, and of course, deep diving on classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope, Ariana Grande's Positions, Lady Gaga's Chromatica, and so much more with all of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All of this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So what are you doing? Go over to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode to sign up at the icon tier today. So I guess maybe this would also be instructive because I do remember also from the film, and I think this is important, that one of the innovations of Tutti Frutti was capturing the flamboyant energy of the live Little Richard show and how he presented, how he performed, and how innovative that was. Can you just talk a little bit about what Little Richard was like on stage and how that informed this combustion, this moment of creating the sound of rock and roll here? Yeah, I mean, who else performed like Little Richard? He was an unimpeachable stage performer. You did not want to come on stage after Little Richard because he was going to wipe the stage clean. I mean, he took no prisoners. He is somebody who was highly, highly charismatic. I wrote about him once and I said that he could keep the electrical grid of three cities going just through his energy itself. But in concerts, and we see this from videos that you can watch on YouTube and others, he would climb speaker stacks. He would rip off his shirt, more so in the 60s and 70s, but he'd rip off his shirt. He'd bring this really carnal energy. I think people often think of him as just being flamboyant and feminine. Right. But he was also, he had this kind of swaggering, preening masculinity mm. as well. And he kind of played with the polarities of those things. But he was incredibly fun, had lots of abandon. And he is somebody who's just a solid, incredible singer as well and could raise a certain kind of heat yes. just through his singing alone. And let's not even talk about the piano player. She knows how to love me. Yes, indeed. But you don't know what you do to me, do the food, oh Rudy. The singer Lloyd Price, who was famous for his song Stagger Lee, he said that nobody would ever want to perform after Little Richard appeared, but not just right after he appeared, like two weeks after he (laughs) appeared. People were still talking about him. And that sounds crazy, but he scorched the earth. He literally made it impossible for people to follow him. He was so dynamic and so vivacious and so full of energy. And let's also talk about the visuals, too. Besides pulling off his shirt and all those kinds of things, I mean, he wore full face of theatrical makeup, the pencil mustache that he had gotten from Louis Jordan, Billy Wright, and others, the pompadour, that highly coiffed hairstyle that he wore that has become part of the template of what it looks like to be a rock star. You see in Buster Poindexter and David Bowie and so many others, he had that incredible visual sense too, that he is somebody who was a visual icon as much as he was a musical one. And so his live performances were just second to none. And that is all captured, thankfully, in some of the recordings of the concerts he's done. It's safe to say that there had never been a performer like that before, right? At that level of success, was he the first of his kind in that way? Yeah, I mean, there had been incredible performers, you know, of course, right in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Sure, sure, sure. But nobody who brought that kind of explosive, carnal, outrageous, provocative energy into music. Nobody had done that before. And so that is what the rock star is even today, yeah. right? That's what we expect of the rock star, somebody who is an iconoclast, who's going to break social conventions, who is mm-hmm. non-normative, anti-normative even, who's going to break down all the social mores that we live in and the conventions that we live in. That's what we expect. And a lot of that has to do with what Little Richard brought 
to mainstream popular music. It's interesting. You keep bringing up the carnality and that explosive sexual energy about the performance. It's like where that meets the almost spiritual because I kept thinking about his upbringing in the church when I listened to him sing and perform. It's halfway between carnal sexual energy and then also worship at the same time. Oh, it's both of those things full on, yeah. right? And that's what's so interesting about it. And it's all delivered through that gritty, mm-hmm. dirt road preacher sound. But he's singing about anal sex, right? Yeah. Coded anal sex. So that <laughs> that is the power of his music. And that's why it has lasted the test of time, because it allows us to see the interrelationship between sin and salvation, mm. between the sacred and the secular, between the worldly and the heavenly. We see and hear and feel all of those things in Little Richard sound and he makes us understand them as a whole as opposed to things that are compartmentalized or separated. So Tutti Frutti is a top 20 hit. It makes Richard a star. He then goes on a rocket ship ride of hits through 1957, basically. Mm-hmm. Everything from Long Tail Sally, Slip and Slide and Rip It Up, Ready Teddy, She Got It, The Girl Can't Help It, Lucille, etc. Are there anything about any of these songs in particular that feel worth noting in terms of how he then takes what he uncovered with Tutti Frutti and expanded or refined what he was doing on record, defining what a Little Richard song is in pop history, pop memory. Is there any of these songs that you feel like is worth zeroing in on in any particular way? Well, first of all, if people haven't heard them, I suggest they go back and listen to them all Yes, because they're absolutely incredible. It's incredible music. Rip It Up, Mm -hmm. Ready Teddy, The Girl Mm -hmm. Can't Help It. I mean, when people heard those songs, like when Lennon and McCartney, before they were the Beatles, heard those songs, they literally became different people. They heard them and then they were like, okay, I got to be somebody else and I see the vision of my own life Mm -hmm. that lies before me. So that's how radical they were. They all followed the Tutti Frutti concept. They were short little pop music grenades yes. that would just explode. I think I once described them as runaway trains for which there's no brakes. They just crash. <laughs> they just start and then they just keep going. They crash at the end. But they're all incredible. And it's Little Richard's band, the Upsetters. And they're taking the cues that they learned from Bumps Blackwell producing in the recording studio. And they're just delivering hit after hit. But there are a couple of songs I think worth mentioning. One is Slippin' and Slidin'. Yeah. Because he's actually using this really interesting Latin habanera bass line and a second line New Orleans drum beat so that sound of the bass and the drum together is one that you'll hear in a lot of other popular music of the time then also 1957, he does Lucille. Right. And that's Earl Palmer, the legendary New Orleans drummer, who is doing something really interesting with the rhythm I just want to identify, which is that he is swinging a kick against a snare, which is done in 4-4. And so that backbeat that he's doing there on Lucille, which is a little different than some of Little Richard's other tracks, that becomes important to 60s rock and roll. So all that garage rock and roll, Louie Louie, Satisfaction, everything like that, a lot of that comes from what Earl Palmer was doing on that Little Richard record in 1957. It changes the sound of rock and roll entirely and actually opens up space for the advent of 1960s rock and roll, different than 1950s.
What are these songs about? Obviously, you can't look at this list of songs and not think about how literally half of them are devoted to a single woman's name. You've got Lucille, you've got Golly Golly Miss Molly, you've got Ready Teddy, you've got Long Tail Sally. I mean, this is definitely a theme that runs through this. Well, Long Tail Sally, she's a special guy. Everything that Uncle John need, oh baby. Are these songs really more about energy and it's not really like they're about anything per se? Or is there themes that are involved in this music? Oh, these are songs about women, about graphic sex, about yeah. carnal sex. Yeah. A lot of them are about loose women, Long Tall Sally and right. Molly who loved to ball. And <laughs> I mean, that was what he wrote about at that time. And he used female pronouns, Lucille and Daisy and Jenny and yeah. everybody else. But we understood when he was singing these songs, or I don't know if people did at the time, but I would imagine many did yeah. that here's somebody who is flamboyant sexually out there clearly non-normative queer gay etc definitely a gender non-conformist obviously a queer provocateur so it's fascinating that he used women's pronouns in that way mm -hmm. and often I think you know he was using the role of the woman as a surrogate for talking about men really right but it's both things because we certainly know that in Little Richard's life he did have sexual relationships with women as well and maybe that's what's so fascinating about it he was just a contradiction in so many ways but he also reveals the totality of what it means to be a sexual human being that his sexuality pointed in a lot of different directions and while the music said one thing we can read in all kinds of other things despite the fact that he's focusing on women and female pronouns how is he relating to his queerness i mean a lot of his story is defined by the in and out of the closet thing that just runs through his work again i go back to him presenting these lyrics about anal sex to his team at that particular moment and what that tells us about how little richard relates to himself. So through this run of hits, as he's becoming a star in this particular moment, 55, 56, 57, how is Little Richard relating to his own identity as a queer person? I mean, some of that stuff we can only know because he shared it with his biographers and that kind of thing. And he's changed his story many, many times. But from what we know, he's someone who absolutely did have sex with men. Even at this time, he also liked to watch people have sex. He was a voyeur mm -hmm. in many mm -hmm. ways. He claims he did have sex with women, but he liked to watch his band members have sex with women a lot. Mm -hmm. He was definitely sexually compulsive. You have to remember as well that early on in his life, he had been raped by a woman in his neighborhood and also by men mm. before he was of age. So I think that shows up in his later life as someone who doesn't have a lot of sexual boundaries in, in many ways. Mm. But he is, for all intents and purposes, queer. I mean, that's a word that we would use now that we might not have used then to define people's sexuality, but he's somebody who was clearly non-normative and he was acting on his impulses. Was he able to be fully out and proud in the way that we identify today? No. He's somebody who was closeted in some ways, and yet at the same time, his sexuality is an open secret. Mm. But you also, again, have to think of the context of the time, this repressive homophobia, 1950s McCarthyism, mm. anti-blackness, racism. It was very difficult for him to be himself, and yet at the same time, he was highly himself in the music, and that's what I think people responded to. I think that that's just something that it's hard for us sitting here in 2023, the people that don't know about this, to sort of think about. Here you have somebody that we look at today and are like, 
like, this is obviously a queer person. Like, it's so <laughs> obvious to us. But of course, that language isn't being used. That's not something that's in common parlance. It's actually something that's probably incredibly threatening and terrifying to people on so many levels. The general public, I mean, the people that are his fans. How are they interfacing with this giant ball of queerness that's in front of them? <laughs> well, I think for some people, he's like an alien who had dropped in from another universe, right? Right. And that's exciting. And his fans are bowled over by him. I mean, he's somebody who represents this flash of possibility of another world in which you can live, in which you can be that free, right. sexually open and in touch with your own desires. On the other hand, let's not forget that rock and roll was heavily, heavily attacked in the 1950s. This was a genre of music that was seen as literally threatening to national security that had to be shut down. And mm. there was so many attempts at censorship of rock and roll, legal attempts, political attempts. It was hated by multiple presidential administrations. It was seen as something that was destabilizing American youth. It was causing young people to go wayward and to lose their minds. It was seen as something that was a huge, huge problem. And Little Richard was one of the people who was at the center of that. And there were many attempts to try to curb the influence of rock and roll, some of them more explicit, some of them more implicit. One of the ways that that happened was that the music industry itself focused on covers of songs by black artists, rock songs by black artists. So Little Richard released Tutti Frutti, but very quickly the industry had Pat Boone, a white artist, genteel, oh doing a cover of Tutti Frutti that is so square and so unhip that when you listen to it now, you're like, I cannot believe somebody released that and that that was actually circulated in the mainstream. Rudy, Tutti Frutti, oh Rudy, but often the covers of Little Richard's songs and songs by other black artists, the white covers of them, did better on the charts than the black artists' songs did. And black artists were not remunerated properly for their music. They often were ripped off. They had disadvantageous recording contracts. So that was one of the ways that black artists were dehumanized and that the industry subtly, not even so subtly, attempted to curb the influence of rock and roll by literally having white artists cover black artist songs, do them in a more genteel style that could reach a wider mainstream and thereby limit the possibility of the threat of rock. It's almost like... The queerness can register, as you were saying, as just kind of a broad sense of breaking rules that isn't necessarily coming across as, this dude is fucking guys. I think about that a lot through queer history when you think about the queer stars of pop music before that was allowed to really exist or be a thing. I think about it even with George Michael, where it was like an open secret and it's like people can experience vibes of queerness without necessarily having to think about what that actually implies about someone's sexuality. Because I can only imagine that the teen girls in the 1950s, that one question I want to ask you is how his music is received differently in black communities and white communities. But it's like the queerness almost comes across as, oh, this is just wild and out there and there's an energy of freedom here. But there's not really like language or ability to think about what actually being gay is in 1950 to Joe Schmo radio listener who's hearing Tutti Frutti on the radio. Oh, yeah, absolutely not. I mean, you're not getting these yeah. multidimensional portraits of gay life. <laughs> in the mid 1950s yeah. but you can infer yeah. from that music what is actually happening and the excitement and also maybe even the horror of gay life at that time is there if you know how to read it and listen right. to it but I think a lot of queerness at that time is really it's about knowing mm. in the way that it is today about knowing so it's all done sort of with a wink so that if you know and if you're in on the secret that big open secret of Little Richard you know what he's singing about you know 
know who he is. You probably even have some sense of the kind of life that he leads. If you don't know, then you can read it a completely different way and you have access to it on the level that you choose to be on and with the information that you bring to it. And that has been true, I think, through the history of popular music. You think about the village people. Yeah. I look at that music and I think, how in the world did people not know that the village people were gay? (laughs) But you just think, okay, well, they're coming to it with the information that they have. And, you know, it's music. People are reading it impressionistically. Mm. They're bringing the information that they have to it, and that's it. Yeah. And the music is not often explaining itself, but it's all there for you to read. And let's face it, Little Richard worked in the realm of camp. Yes. This exaggerated artifice. Yes. And camp, you know, has been defined as a kind of surplus. It's there. It exceeds the official definition or meaning of the thing that it is. So you're presenting Tutti Frutti as this song that is just this fun, ribald, off-color number. But the camp aspect of it, the surplus, the excess of it is all of these other unofficial, non-intended meanings. And that's the level at which it's working. And so if you know how to read camp, you know that there's all kinds of other levels of meaning that you can access in it. But most people don't. And they just read it as being fun or colorful or over the top. (laughs) He deserves all of the plaudits, if for nothing else, for the number of levels this music has to function on in order to get to where he got to in life. It's got to be so many things to so many different people, and that in and of itself boggles the mind, I guess, in terms of how one can even achieve that. So this is the canonical run of Little Richard hits right here. They happen in a pretty short time period. It's like 18 months. Yeah, like an 18-month period. He has 10, 12 huge songs. How would you sort of characterize the level of his fame? You are already were getting into this. A lot of times, yes, Little Richard had become a big star. He had some big hits. But a lot of the times, it would be this thing where Elvis would cover the song and then that would actually become the bigger hit. That was happening over and over again. How big of a star, just so that people that didn't live through it or don't have a sense of how this worked in this time period, how big of a star is Little Richard? And how is his stardom different in different communities to a segregated audience? Which I think we should also highlight here. This is still a time where Little Richard is often performing one show for black audiences, one show for white audiences. How is that all functioning at this peak moment of success for him? Yeah, it's important to note, as you did, that these were segregated listening spaces, especially in the South, but all over, that blacks and whites were increasingly listening to the same music, but couldn't do it in the same spaces. Right. And so that's one of the powers of rock and roll in the 1950s, is that it was an aggregating force that brought together different communities who had been legally segregated and separated in terms of race. The music itself was the aggregating force. Right. And so that's incredibly powerful. And it's one of the ways that his music could be described as a crossover music that pointed to these forms of solid Solidarity that offered the blueprint for what it might mean to live in an actually democratic country where people can actually all participate and it's actually inclusive. You know, at the time and even today, we don't live in that country, mm-hmm. but the music flashed the possibility of what that country could be and that world could be. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important to note. So in this time period, Little Richard is one of the biggest rock and roll stars, and he's understood that way. I mean, he's having a string of hits on the charts. 
even bigger than Tutti Frutti, and he's considered one of the foundational rock and roll figures next to Chuck Berry, comes along, Jerry Lee Lewis, Buddy Holly, all of those other figures. Yet at the same time, it's clear that Little Richard is not fully given his due, even in the 1950s, for all the work that he's done, partly because of the fact that rock and roll is increasingly being seen as a place where white people can succeed and black people are secondary. Mm -hmm. So other than Chuck Berry and maybe Bo Diddley, a lot of those early rock and roll figures are white. And rock and roll is seen by many people as a white form of music, increasingly so in the 1960s with the advent of the Beatles and others. Mm -hmm. But even in the late 1950s, that had started to become true. And so Little Richard, I think, felt to some degree marginalized in the 50s, even though he had this huge string of hits and was a big superstar in the world of rock and roll. He was definitely impacted by the fact that he wasn't being treated very well. He was being treated the way that a black man might be treated in a anti-black racist society that really did define the United States at that time in the late 1950s. Okay, so Richard's run of hits is kind of cut short in some ways by himself because he is at one point aboard a plane, sees what he believes to be a fireball that signals the end of the world, and then decides that he is done making rock music. Do I have that story correct? Yeah, I mean, he. it sounds crazy to talk about it now, but this is 1957, and he was yeah. in Australia touring, yeah. and Russia had sent off their first satellite, Sputnik. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. And he saw the light from Sputnik and supposedly he said, this is it, I'm leaving show business. This is a sign from God. I need to repent and leave this worldly secular space that I've been in and devote myself to the Lord. That's the official story that he gave. And you <laughs> yeah. have to remember, every time he gave an official story, you had to take it with A boulder of salt. Of salt. <laughs> <laughs> because it's Little Richard, and he's a fantabulist, and he's somebody yes. who created his own fictions as much as he lived in any kind of reality. And so I think the more likely truth is that it was very difficult for him to be on the road. Mm -hmm. He had very, very long road trips through the segregated South. Mm -hmm. Not easy for anybody. He had faced incredible mistreatment treatment from his record companies, mm. from promoters, his money had been stolen, he had signed really terrible recording contracts that he didn't understand, and dealing with those forces of racism, of homophobia, of industry pressure, I think it was too much. And now we have a language for this. Now we see artists like Shawn Mendes say, look, I have anxiety, I have mental health issues, I can't stay on the road as long as you would like me to, I need to take time off. I think we are in a culture where we accept that more and we understand that artists are human beings as well. I don't think that was understood then. And for somebody who was such a lightning rod, somebody who was such a cultural revolutionary, it really did take a personal toll on him. And I think he needed to to find his own space outside of it. So I think it's a mixture of things, but the excuse that he gave was that he had seen the Sputnik and he thought 
God was talking to him. Isn't some of it, though, the internalized homophobia coming back to roost? Absolutely. That feels like a really important ping-ponging effect throughout his entire life, which is he would let himself go bananas and be his full self and be fully out there and let himself completely fly. And then it was almost like this other force would enter his space and being that had been so deeply ingrained in him that rock and roll music was evil and that his queerness was going to send him to hell, which was clearly a huge haunting element to his psyche throughout his entire life. And that seems to be an important moment here where it was almost like he would let himself go and then this moderating force would enter the sphere and sort of be like, no, 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 don't go all the way there or something like that. Yeah. That moderating force you describe is internalized homophobia. Yeah. That's what it is. And let's also say that there was probably some internalized racism there too, right? Because of the culture that he lived in. And I think it's probably the intersection of those forces. I mean, part of it is that he also played up being effeminate. Right. Sometimes because that's what allowed him to be non-threatening to white audiences, Mm. right? Then to black audiences when he would do that, then sometimes they would think of him as a buffoon or a caricature. Mm. And so then you'd have to rebel against that. So he lived in an impossible time. Wow. It was an impossible time. And so he did what he could to survive. And sometimes that means stealing yourself away, as they say in the church. You have to literally remove yourself and you have to disappear. And we've seen other artists do that as well. Sly from Sly and the Family Stone did that. Mm. He disappeared at a moment in which it was very difficult for him to be who he was. D'Angelo did that in his own way as well. And there are other examples too. So I think there's a justification for why Little Richard did it. And I think it's important to look at that moment historically and culturally and where he was at. You know, there was never anyone like Little Richard before exactly in that mainstream space. And so maybe 18 months was the most someone who did what he did could do, right? right? And actually still be a human being. Right. I mean, I actually thought about Kanye a little bit in terms of just this explosive innovator, huge barrier breaking black artist who then also retreated into the gospel, into religious music. I don't know, that popped into my head when I was looking at Little Richard. And Kanye, also somebody that had to be a lot of things to a lot of different people in order to achieve the level of fame and success and breakthrough pop stardom that he did achieve. I wonder if there's even a parallel in a modern sense. I mean, you've been alluding to how so much has changed and so much has stayed the same (laughs) throughout history from this time through the present day. So obviously Kanye's got other stuff going on too, so I don't want to like... Yeah, I think people wish he would vanish now (laughs) as opposed to him just vanishing. (laughs) The other thing that I think is important to note about Little Richard at the time is, I think I even say this in the documentary, they're underwriting a lot of his humor and his ribald sense of being in the world and the frivolity and all of that is this rage. Mm. He's really angry at the fact that he's had to suffer through so much, whether you're talking about state-sanctioned segregation or poverty and prejudice or his upbringing. Remember, this is somebody who had been molested as a child. Mm -hmm. He'd been abused by his father. He'd been bullied as a child. Artists had come and covered his hits and tried to erase him and smudge him out. I mean, what can you do right Right, and so I think what you do is you vanish and you try to come back in a different way and I think that's what he did so he comes out with some gospel music in the early 60s one album had the hilariously campy title for somebody that's saying that they're tempering themselves the king of the gospel in 1961. But he does sound pretty different on this music than on his canonical hits. I mean, he sounds almost like not himself at all. I mean, he has a beautiful voice no matter when he's singing, but this definitely did not sound like the same person that was singing Tutti Frutti when you listen to this music. Do Lord, oh do Lord, Lord, remember me, oh do Lord, oh do Lord, Lord, remember me. 
No, I mean, he comes back after he spent time promoting the church and all those kinds of things that he was doing. But he comes back and he is a different person in many yeah. ways. And although he's trying to restart his career, rock and roll has been such an incredibly galvanizing force that it's already gone past him in so many ways. And it's really at that point in the early 60s that it's just touring gigs. He's doing some film cameos, some TV, but it's already, you know, the advent of the Beatles by like the early 60s. And they're his opening act. <laughs> then it's going to be Jimi Hendrix and all of these other figures. And so Little Richard is in a very different space. Yeah. He's already a kind of elder figure right? by the early mid-1960s. Right. And I think he inhabits that persona. And I think he clearly understands that he needs to plant his flag and say, this music that you all are making is the music that that I made just 10 years ago, right? And I am here and I'm going to write myself into existence and I'm not going to be erased and I'm not going to be bullied out of this. And so I think that's the reason for him to start calling himself the originator, the innovator, the architect, put those names on his albums because he needs to stake his claim. And I think that's important and I think it's a good lesson for a lot of people who are innovators and then find those innovations being stylized by other people who make more money on those innovations than you do as the actual originator. And so I'm okay with him in this moment. Yeah, It's a troubling moment for him and it's a moment in which he's still trying to find his way to establish his prominence. Yeah, I mean, he seems like he's very torn asunder in the early to mid 60s between his desire to become a man of God again and then also to make sure that everybody remembers that he's the king of rock and roll. And it sort of sends him on a trajectory, which is really interesting, actually. I'm interested in you characterizing it as almost like an ongoing mission to remind people of who he is and declaring who he is in the space. Because his career over the next, let's say, 30 years on some level almost feels defined really interestingly by him continuing to be like a very prominent part of pop culture. He's a big touring act, it seems like to me. He's playing with a lot of the people that are his sons and daughters in the space, and yet not really on the back of new music. It doesn't seem like Little Richard ever again releases actual new songs that have any serious impact. Is that a correct characterization? Yeah, I mean, he's definitely releasing a lot of new music. Yeah. It's just not hitting the charts in the same way. Yeah. And that's also because the sound of rock and roll is completely changing yeah. rapidly in the 60s, of course, because of all of the sonic innovations and all of the other stuff that's happening in terms of yeah. the use of the recording studio as a creative laboratory. Yeah. He's not that kind of an artist. He really is a 50s artist, not a 60s artist. The Beatles will be 60s artists. Jimi Hendrix will be an artist who's of the 60s. But Little Richard is very much of the 50s. But nonetheless, the innovations that he created in the 50s made it possible for what then happened in the 60s and beyond. And he wants to stake his claim for that. But he, yeah, he never has the success again that he had in the 50s. And he's somebody who says, I'm the king and I'm returning to my rightful throne. So I think he's comfortable in that place with these artists paying homage to him as an originator, as opposed to somebody who's trying to chase hits, because I don't think he's able to. Is there music from this post-peak of hits period that feels valuable in any meaningful way, that feels underrated to you? Or do you feel like his music was also stuck in an old mode of being? How do you perceive the music in maybe, let's say, the late 60s, early 70s, any other time besides that peak even? I mean, well, first of all, let me just distinguish. I think as a performer, he's at his best. Right. Like when you look at some of the concerts from that time period, you just think, how does this person exist? Right. I 
reinvents his style. He has these very flamboyant costumes that he develops, the headband and the almost like pre-Harry Styles, whatever Harry Styles is aping right now kind of looks. Absolutely. Sequins and pre-glam. I mean, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. And so he's still the unimpeachable stage performer. Yeah. Absolutely incredible to watch. Yeah. But he just can't translate it into his recordings. Yeah. And I don't even know if he's trying to really translate into his recordings. His time is really past. Yeah. But I think there's some interesting moments. He's on reprise records in the 70s and he does this album called The Real Thing. Yeah. And he's got a song called Freedom Blues. It's very 70s, but it's fascinating. It's interesting. You hear me calling him my people. And I think of all of those artists of that time period who were trying to find their footing in changing black music that had moved from R&B to soul to then funk and a more kind of Afrocentric black power music. And he's doing his thing on that track, Freedom Blues. Mm. There's others doing it too. Louis Armstrong, legendary jazz figure, who also finds his return to the charts with What a Wonderful World. Right. He's doing a cover of Give Peace a Chance by John Lennon in the early 70s. And it's an incredible funk track. So I think he's exploring different sounds, different trends, and he's trying to find his way back into the music industry, but it never really works for him. And he's also, of course, beset by a lot of personal problems. He becomes a drug addict in the mm-hmm. 70s. He's hooked on cocaine and other drugs. And he can never find his way back exactly to the success that he had. And in a certain way, he becomes a celebrity figure equal to his status as a musician and a recording artist, the talk show appearances. I mean, he's so funny and charming to talk to on TV. How does he sort of utilize the celebrity function, which is such an important part of pop stardom as we think about it today, as the 70s, 80s, 90s rolls on? How does he sort of maintain celebrity or expand his persona in the pop space, even while he's not a radio presence, I guess? Yeah, I think he does it through a lot of TV appearances. He is showing up everywhere on all these talk shows, as you mentioned, and he is a larger than life persona. Yeah. It is over the top. Right. He's incredibly funny, incredibly charming. Mm -hmm. He's absolutely out there, kooky, left field, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that makes him an endearing figure. Do you realize that, well, you must realize that at your performances, now there are people who weren't even alive when you first began uh, recording. Yes, but I have woke him up now. Everybody that wasn't alive when I started and was gone, I have brought the spirit and put it on them. They have resurrected. They are here now and will be out there on Saturday night to hear me at Wembley Stadium when I'm going to let it all hang out. Could I say something? Go ahead. Let it all hang out with the beautiful little Richard from down in Macon, Georgia. I am the king of rock and roll. Ow, ow. Oh, my, 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 my. I just had to do that. Now I feel so much better. I got it out. And I think people look at him as a figure who really did represent a certain time in the 50s that was exciting. So you have to remember, by the late 60s, early 70s, all those people who grew up on his music are looking back nostalgically at that era that they lived in. Mm. And they look up to Little Richard as a figure who meant so much to them. It's not just like he means a lot to the rockers, like to the Stones and to the Beatles and so on. He means a lot to everyday people whose lives were also transformed by the example of rock and roll. They love him. He's an endearing figure. He's also somebody who isn't necessarily racking up hits on the charts, but now exists at this other floating level of celebrity 
where he's known by everybody, but not necessarily for the music itself. Right. And so I think that's also part of why he has to remind people that what he did was not just show up as a cultural figure, but as a musical figure. He's the architect of rock and roll. He's the innovator, right? Mm -hmm. He wants you to know that the music you're listening to now, which is the most popular music in the world, rock and roll, is his creation, Mm -hmm. right? And he's actually a scientist, an innovator, an architect of this music itself. And that's, that's important. And in a way, it feels like this latter sort of swing of his career post his hit making, it's defined by that mission. The sense that I get by it is here's somebody that was completely underappreciated for his accomplishments and continued to be. I mean, the film does a great job of chronicling how he's consistently not given his due. He never won a Grammy, for instance, for any of his work. His record deal was such that because he broke it and because it was so terrible, even though he wrote all of these canonical songs that went on to be in Boring hits that are probably still making tons of money to this day. He never saw a cent from any of that stuff. He struggled financially. He struggled in all of these particular ways. He had to spend his life on this nonstop hamster wheel of declaring who he was, declaring what he had done. And I love how in the film, I think you talked about how it's so important, especially for Black people, to go out there and do that and to declare who they are. But at the same time, there is this sort of patina of tragedy that surrounds him because of that, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think of him as a tragic figure. I know some do. Yeah. I think there are aspects of tragedy in his story, but I think of him as somebody who overcame incredible great odds and had this improbable life story. Yeah. But he is a model for how not to shrink in the face of forms of supremacy. Right. So white supremacy, straight supremacy, male supremacy, right? It's just, you have to find a way to refuse to not be written out of existence. Yes. And that's essentially what he did. And the best new artist is... Me. I have never received nothing. You ain't never gave me no Grammy. And I've been singing for years. I am the architect of what you And you know, we see this over and over historically. I see somebody like an Azalea Banks, despite all of the other issues that (laughs) plague her, as somebody who literally in real time had to fight her appropriation, where you had rappers like Iggy Azalea show up with the same name. Yeah. And then the fact that so many other people copied some of her innovations, but also the willingness of the industry to write her off in a sort of double standard at the same time that they would gladly welcome with open arms someone like Kanye, who represented some of the same issues that she did. And so Mm. she in real time had to write herself into the culture and I think the model for that earlier is Little Richard he spends decades doing that but not just doing that in the 80s he's also filing a lawsuit against specialty records and all the people that ripped him off he's having to write a biography so he can set the record straight on his own life he's trying to come back over and over and over and part of that is because he was historically erased in the industry or there was an attempt to erase him as an originator, as the originator of this music. The fact that he wasn't given those Grammys, the fact that he wasn't given the accolades that he should have been, that is the tragedy, if anything. Yes. I want to know through the latter part of his life, through the 70s, through the 80s, through the 90s, how does his relationship to his queerness and identity evolve? I know that there's a lot of complexity into how culture receives it and the film got into this in really interesting ways. So he kind of comes in and out of the closet. There's sometimes where he's very proudly like I was the first gay person that anybody ever saw. You were the first performer, I think, ever to come out and say, I am a homosexual. Yes, and everybody got mad with me for saying that. You know, I, I, I didn't mind telling the world that I was gay. I was gay. 
And uh, uh, it's nice to be happy. It sure is. And then there's moments where he's like, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Oh, no, but God gave me the victory. I'm not gay now, but you know, I was gay all my life. I believe I was one of the first gay people to come out. But God let me know that he made Adam be with Eve, not Steve. So, uh, 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 so I just, uh, I gave my heart to Christ. But let me add that. So he's both celebrating himself as a pioneer, but then sometimes not portraying gay people. Obviously, he's having his own journey that's very complex. But can you just characterize a little bit the way that Little Richard exists in public as he relates to his own identity? Yeah, I mean, even by 58, he's converting to Seventh-day Adventism. Yeah. Then by the 70s, as I mentioned, he's on drugs, yeah. cocaine and heroin and marijuana and PCP and all of that. Yeah. But he recovers from all that drug abuse by entering into this really, really conservative phase. Yes. And he's not being quiet about it. He's giving interviews. And so he's like a ping pong ball, right? Like he's right. Yeah. going back and forth and he's making contradictory statements and he's talking openly about his relationship to homosexuality. And then other times he's denouncing it so wildly in a way that's so damaging to other people. It's back and forth, back and forth. And even by the end, he's on Three Angels Broadcasting Network and he's claiming that it's unnatural to be gay. It's unnatural to be transgender. So the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s for Little Richard is a dark period in some ways Mm -hmm. because of the fact that he doesn't have a consistent progressive approach to thinking about his own sexual orientation or the orientation of others yeah and that he engages in this language that is dehumanizing and that is frankly kind of violent to the existence of queer people everywhere and so it's a really ugly period for little richard in that sense yeah and yet at the same time he does have this comeback in the 80s through the movie down and out in beverly hills he's back on the scene i live right across the street from this place but i don't get this kind of service no sir Two weeks ago, a thief tried to break in my house. Call the police. Good God almighty. It took 20 minutes for the policeman to arrive. One little car, no dog, no chopper. And I know why I don't get the protection I am supposed to get. Because I'm black. Black, I'm a black man. Ain't no black man supposed to live in Beverly Hills. So he's beloved in some circles, but it's also really unfortunate the way he alienates himself too often from gay communities because of his rhetoric. What do you think is Little Richard's legacy in light of all of that? Not as a musician, we've talked a lot about that, but as a queer figure. When we look back at the history of queer pop stars, and frankly, there's not that many of them. I mean, there are, but there's not that many of them that are out or that we can sort of talk about in those terms. What is his legacy in that lineage? How do we look back on that in all of its complexities now, do you think? Look, I think he's someone who deserves to be celebrated as a pioneering figure, a trailblazing figure who opened up space for so many others to walk through and not just random others. The most important pop musicians of our time yeah, right. <laughs> walked in his footsteps and still walk in his footsteps. So he rewrote the entire DNA and molecular structure of popular music to the extent that everybody is just sort of following in those footsteps and all of his innovations have replicated themselves over the decades and years and in terms of his queerness I think he should be celebrated Mm -hmm. for finding that space for himself where he could express who he was 
musically and on stage and in those interviews and so on, even if he couldn't be fully liberated, he did liberate other people. That's really, really important. And yet, at the same time, I think it's also important, especially for today's younger generation of queers, Mm -hmm. to (laughs) remember the incredible context in which people were making some of the decisions that they had to make. I don't want to romanticize the past, but I also want to say that it was incredibly difficult for people to be themselves, to be fully out, because there were incredible stigmas for doing so. You could literally lose your livelihood. You could go to jail for it. Mm-hmm. Remember, he did go to jail for some of his activities previously. So he's somebody who ran afoul of the law, understood the dangers of what that meant for a person of color who was queer to exist in the way that he did. And he still did it anyway. Mm. And I think he has to be commended for that. I think we shouldn't overlook the negative things that he did. Yeah, We shouldn't overlook the dangers in which he put people because of the language that he used. He was involved in this pre-Me Too relationship with the dancer Audrey Robinson. Yeah. I don't think we should overlook that. But we need to think of him warts and all yeah. and understand the totality of Little Richard in order to really honor all that he did and to think about his place in pop music history. I'm honestly so moved having gone on this journey because the truth of the matter is that I was born in 1987 and as a pop fan I still in this era so many years removed from Little Richard's peak didn't get to really experience out gay pop stars at their peak either. I look at somebody now like Little Nas X, who really in some ways I think represents perhaps the first or one of the first truly super mainstream and out during the main swing of their success yep. pop stars, right? And it's so obvious the ways that Little Nas X stands, not just through his name in the lineage of Little Richard, they're inherently connected to each other. And it's honestly tragic for us as queer people that this is is the world that we still live in where pop music is defined by queerness in all the ways that we were talking about with Little Richard. Obviously, he is the mother of, of music and of pop stardom and of music as we understand it today for all of the technical reasons that he is those things. But also, queer people are the fans of pop music. Queer people are the people that allow this music to thrive. We're the ones that stick with it through thick and thin, whether it's trendy, whether it's whatever it is. We're the ones that are there for it all the time. And yet, we continue to be marginalized at the center of it in so many ways. In so many ways, you want to say times have changed and Little Richard opened many doors and he did. And obviously we have come a ways in this particular space. And I think this moment we live in right now is perhaps one of the most exciting in terms of doors that are being broken down for trans people, for everybody on the queer spectrum. We have artists like Kim Petras is able to have a number one hit and win a Grammy. We have Little Nas X. We have Sam Smith, gender non-conforming, all of these things. And yet it still feels novel. It still feels not common. It's still feels shocking when you experience it. I mean, I remember hearing Call Me By Your Name, the little Nas X song for the first time, thinking about the Tutti Frutti lyrics earlier. And I was like, oh, because I'm not used to hearing somebody (laughs) sing about gay sex in that way. And this extends into all kinds of mediums. I mean, I feel this way when I watch Call Me By Your Name. I mean, there's all kinds of things where I'm still surprised as somebody born in the late 1980s when we get to exist (laughs) like in in the center of these spaces. And it's almost hard for me to even process what it would have been like to be Little Richard and to be this person in 1955, the bravery that that took, the fucking balls that it took to be him. It's stunning, honestly, and and deeply moving. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It really is. I've spent my whole life just, I think, trying to figure out how people like Little Richard 
Sylvester, mm. even Lil Nas X, how they do it, how they've done it. Yeah. Because it does require an incredible amount, as you say, of personal courage mm. to stand there in your truth facing these incredible systemic forces that want to eradicate you. Mm. And it's just an amazing model for how to do that, right? That's the genius of popular music. It gives us a model in the form of these human beings of how to face systemic pressure and to change systems. I think of Lil Nas X, I think of Lil Richard and all these figures as world makers. They completely created new worlds for people to live in, even if they couldn't go into those worlds themselves and live freely in those worlds. Maybe Lil Nas X can. I don't think Lil Richard was able to. Yeah, right. But that's incredibly powerful. And ultimately, one of the things that we learned from Lil Richard's example is that rock music is not a normative space. Mm. It's always been a non-normative space. It's been a space for the outcasts, the marginalized, the people who society has rejected to thrive. Mm. Whether you're talking about a Little Richard or an Elton John or anybody else, that is part of the power of pop music, part of the power of the top 40. And Little Richard is an inconvenient reminder for so many people that queer aesthetics, and particularly black queer aesthetics, remain at the heart of rock and roll. That's what's there. And you have to contend with it. And he forces you to contend with it. I love that. I love that too. And it's that thing you said earlier about claiming it, because if you don't claim it, it exists through avatars. And that's like so much what pop music and the relationship between queer people and pop music is too often defined by. I mean, as beautiful as the relationship is between queer men and pop divas, it is one of the great, whatever, unions in pop cultural history. And they serve their purpose and we love them and we stand them and like, yes, diva queen, whatever. <laughs> it is also so important to recognize that what they're doing in a lot of senses is serving as a palatable avatar for queerness. Yeah. That is Madonna, that is Beyonce, that is all of these women. And it is so important for queer people and particularly queer black people to step forward and do that. And even though Little Richard didn't do that at every turn, obviously, he did it more so than anybody should have felt safe doing in the time that he was doing it in. And to me, that's worth endless celebration. And I was really very emotional at the end of the movie just thinking about him and as you said, what it means to just see somebody like yourself. Because I just know what that feels like as a queer person. It's the cliche of the representation does matter. It really does matter that you can look at somebody out there that is you, that reflects you back to you. And as pop fans, as I said, gay people, queer people, we are one of the most important segments of that consuming culture. And I just want to see more of us there. I think anybody that gets there and is there is standing in Little Richard's legacy, I guess. And I think even beyond that, we are everywhere else too, right? So when I talk about popular music and you think of Sam Cooke or James Brown or the Beatles or Freddie Mercury or Otis Redding or Elton John or the Stones or Prince or Michael Jackson or Madonna or Katy Perry or Harry Styles or Little Nas X, Little Richard is everywhere. Everywhere. And that's why the film, Little Richard, I Am Everything, my Pitchfork article was Little Richard is everywhere. He's literally everywhere. So we should see ourselves reflected mm. everywhere and we also need to see more figures like Little Richard so that we can continue to see ourselves Alright, so let's talk about the pop pantheon. 
This is a complicated little <laughs> number we got to do here. Here's what I want to say to you before we even have this conversation. One thing that I've learned 100 some odd episodes into this show is that the rules are hard to apply to the people that are there at the beginning of something. Somehow their importance doesn't necessarily slot easily into some of the terminology that I've put together for these tiers. So I think for Little Richard, we're going to have to use a little bit of just our <laughs> intuitive understanding of his impact and legacy because ultimately, if we were going by the metrics that this pantheon lays out, we're talking about someone who had hits for 18 months. And clearly, that's not representative of Little Richard's legacy. So I'm curious where you think Little Richard belongs in the pop pantheon. He's definitely tier one, yeah. the icon tier, for all the reasons that are obvious, legendary, yeah. untouchable, mm -hmm. timeless, all of mm -hmm. those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to venture, I'm going to disrupt your normativity of categories here, and I'm going to venture that he's tier zero. Ah! Because he's ground zero. So yeah. he is like the pre-tier. He conditions the reasons for us to even have the tears in the first place. Mm. I know that doesn't exist, but I think it should exist for him because we wouldn't be talking about almost anybody else in pop music unless there was Little Richard. And so let's think of him as the ground zero that lays the possibility for other tears to then exist. I'll take it, Jason. <laughs> I'll take it. What am I going to say to that? Of course. Yeah. Here's this. When we release our updated graphics ranking, we'll put him in tier one. But for everybody to know who's listening right now, Little Richard gets his own tier of the pop pantheon. And he would love that. I am more than happy to bestow that honor upon him. He more than deserves it. And this was so great. I just absolutely loved getting to learn more about him. And I'm so happy that you were on the show again. What is an underrated Little Richard song that we could send the podcast out on? Something maybe we haven't touched on yet. I can only just name one of my favorite songs, which isn't really... Yes underrated because it was okay. a popular song but it's sure. something that so many people don't know and they should listen to which is keep a knocking but you can't come in so that was his <laughs> big hit from 1957 it's in that tutti frutti style it's rip roaring aggressive incredible hard driving r&b song but what i love about it is just the lyrics because <laughs> clearly this is supposed to be a, about a lover who's at the door and can't come in but come on it's really an ode <laughs> for sex and penetration it's one of those things where you're like how did they get away with that? How did he get away with that? And so I just love this because I just think it's one of those classic Little Richard songs that mm -hmm. there's nothing like this even on the radio today. Yeah, I love that. Let's go out and keep a knocking. Jason King, thank you so, so, so much for being on the show again. So happy to be here. Cheers. Cheers. All right, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon, Little Richard, a certified tier one icon. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you once again to the fabulous Jason King for coming back on the show. Of course, to my main man, Russ Martin, for everything he does to make the show happen every week. To PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode and Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Please follow us at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Get our merch at poppantheonpod.com. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Come to Gorgeous, gorgeous New York tomorrow night at Sultan Room in Bushwick. And until we meet again, I hope you have a wonderful life. Bye bye. Keep a